Coming to you from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the city of brotherly love and sisterly affection, I'm Lisa Sharon Harper, president of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. Welcome to the Freedom Road podcast. Each month, we speak with national faith leaders, advocates, and activists to have the kinds of conversations we normally have on the front lines. It's just that this time, we've got microphones in our faces, and you are listening in. And this month, we have a really super special treat for our listeners. I am so excited. I'm excited. Um, We are in conversation this month with Cole Arthur Riley, the author of This Year Flesh and creator of the Black Liturgies platform on Instagram. In a world overwhelmed with existential threats like nuclear war, pandemic, white nationalists threatening democracy, and all the rest, in that context, the everyday pain absorbed by Black life, the microaggressions at work, the traffic stops that heighten our blood pressure, the financial stress, it can all be overwhelming. And it can also all be pushed down, pushed aside in the wake of these more national concerns. But that toxic fear, that, that toxicity doesn't go away. It goes into our bodies and our relationships with God, with ourselves, with each other, with the rest of creation. Disconnection becomes our norm. So I invited Cole Arthur Riley to come and speak to us today because her Black liturgies and her book offer guidance back to ourselves, back to each other, back to God in a context of a writhing and transforming world. So I want you to, you know, let me know what you, what you think. Tweet to me at Lisa S. Harper or to Freedom Road at Freedom Road Us. You know, put your thoughts in the comments on Instagram and on Facebook. But, and also make sure you keep sharing the podcast with your friends. Our audience is growing and it's really exciting to see so many people listening. In fact, I mean, I'm running into people all over the place who are like, I listen to your podcast. I'm like, oh my gosh, like, you're like, you're actually listening. That's so cool. <laughs> because, you know, you're speaking to a microphone and don't really know where it's going or who's listening. So thank you for listening and thank you for sharing. All right. So Cole, when you talk about the spirituality of trees on the very first page of the preface, I could not help but remember what I thought about a conversation that you had with Nadia Bowles-Weber. Because I was struck in the middle of that conversation that you have this really strong plumb line in your core. You have your own strong core. You're grounded in a way that's very unusual for someone. I mean, I hate to, I don't want to sound like, you know, patronizing. I really don't. But for somebody of your age, and I, maybe, maybe you're older than I think, but I'm 31. Oh my God. See what I'm talking about? No, you're not older than I think. I thought you were just, that's right. Literally right about the time that I thought. Right. So my niece and my nephew, they're about the same age as you, maybe two years older. And they are just finding like that place, that, that confidence or whatever it is. I know I didn't really find that until I was in my forties and even really until I was in my fifties, but I sat there watching you and there was a stillness and a calmness and an awesomeness about you because of your groundedness. So when you were talking about the spirituality of trees, 
I sat there thinking she's introducing herself to us on the first page of this preface. Would you agree with that? Wow. No one said that, but you know what? I, I hope. Yeah. I hope. Yeah. The, the rootedness, the, but also the stillness, but the movement. Yeah. I hope that says something about me as well. I think it does. Can you tell me how did this happen? I mean, really, it's like <laughs> literally awesome to watch. It's an awesome thing because here's the thing. It's the difference between, you know, when you're usually when you're 30, 31, you're just starting to understand what you have to contribute to the world. If you're really fortunate, you know what that is and you're, you're but you're striving. People are usually still in very much in striving mode. And what I didn't sense with you and that interview and even now, you know, is a striving, trying to live up to the moment. You don't. You are settled into the moment, into the here and right now. And that is unusual. That normally doesn't come till you're in your 40s and 50s. So how did this happen for you? You know, what I think contributed to it was probably getting sick. You know, I, I, I talk about this a little bit in the book, but I became sick around six years ago, and I think anyone who has known something about chronic illness, chronic pain, who has had to live in the kind of fear and uncertainty, especially as a, a Black woman, to have to live in that kind of uncertainty for a period of time, mm-hmm. I just think you go to places in your mm-hmm. mind that you that I wouldn't have gone, you know, had I not mm-hmm. been sick. And when I began to have troubles, trouble with my eyes, and I'm, I'm still having that, that trouble, I all of a sudden started to hear, you know, my fears louder, my desires louder. You know, what am I really afraid of? You know, and I had to become wow. honest about those things. Like, okay, I'm not afraid of going blind. I'm afraid of being obsolete. I'm afraid of being forgotten, you know. If I, you really have to, I had to excavate, had to go deeper and deeper to really make sense of what was feeling and what I was feeling. And because of my health, I spend a lot of time, you know, thinking. And I spent a lot of time with my eyes closed lately and picking up other senses and sensations in my body, but also going to memories and stories. And yeah, I just, I, I don't know if you're if people listening will resonate with that. It just I think being sick has a way of making you honest. Yeah. Oh, it so does. You know, I mean, I I have never. It's not true. I have been chronically sick. I had hives for an entire year. Like literally, there was not a day that I didn't wake up that I didn't have hives. Or you know, and there I was in the hospital twice that year. Almost died twice that year. Literally, woke up in the middle of the night with a swollen tongue and swollen head and all of that. And there is, there is a stillness. You're right. There is a stillness that, and also honestly, for me, I found a deeper, more concrete connection to God than at any other point in my life. Have you experienced that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Because I feel closer to myself, you know, I feel closer to my own interior world. I have to. And so, yeah, I think it in turn draws me into, I don't know, what I think of the divine, who, who I think God is. Who is that? Way. Who is God? Well, answer for today, hmm. <laughs> because I think the answer is probably pretty fluid for me. But for today, and I think in writing this book, 
especially, I, I, I was really interested in the kind of familial character of God and probably because I was going into the stories of my father and, and grandma, I started to see the divine and communicate the divine as, as a mother, as a father, as a child, you know, and mm-hmm. playful and experiencing, yeah, all these different kind of roles that I think God can play within a family system. Yeah, I'm very interested in that. But in general, I, 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 can never be too precise about what, who I think God is, what I think God is. I know there are people who are able to do that. You know, there are people who have a very kind of, a kind of clarity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm just not one of them. Yeah. I love those people. I need those people in my life. I'm, I'm just not one of them. I'm probably more skewed toward mystery and just not knowing. And wonder, right? You even write about that. In your book, I think that honestly, I think that's something that especially in Western Christianity, and I would actually say white evangelical Christianity, wonder is not valued, certainty valued, right? And so I think that you're actually placing wonder as one of the central values that you talk about in the book, and not just values, but necessities, it counters that force that I think takes us away from God. Right. So I want to read a passage from your book. <laughs> I can tell you, I'm wow. totally back early here. I, I wanna, can I read a passage from your book? Is yes, that okay? please. Wow. <laughs> yes, of course. Girl, you can write. Oh my God, can you write? So, okay. So it's the first chapter. It's the first paragraph of the first chapter one on dignity. And I just I mean, literally, you could literally just open the page almost, you know, yeah, they do the Bible, like people when they're doing Bible studies, sometimes they'll open a Bible and like put their finger on the thing and it'll say, okay, this is what the Bible has to say to me today. Well, I could do this with your book. I could put my finger anywhere in your book and be absolutely in awe of the way that you are putting words together. Oh my God. So, oh, it's for real. This is for real. So I want to read the first paragraph, not even paragraph, like a couple of lines of your, of chapter one in your book so that readers, listeners who will become readers will understand what I'm talking about. You write on, and this is the chapter on dignity, a baby bursts out of a great black womb saying, it is what it is. And he is my father. My grandma used to say, oh child, when your daddy came out of me, he tried to take his whole house with him. He cleaved to her insides like he knew what was his to have. My father was born smooth. And then you go on to talk about how he glides and swings. (laughs) I can see him. I can see him. And I just love your grandma is actually a poet. Can I just say she's a she's a walking poet like her. She's poetry. But I love that when your daddy came out of me, he tried to take his whole house with him. What, when did you discover your talent for wordcraft and how did you cultivate it? Well, I was a very, I mean, in contrast to my father, I was a very shy, very reserved child. I wasn't incredibly verbal until I was around seven or eight. I I spoke very little to very few people. 
And I was a part of, I mean, my family, (laughs) you you meet my family, I was a part of this just loud, energetic, charismatic, or just some of the funniest, warmest people. So I'm a part of this family trying to make sense of myself as a little girl. And, you know, speech for me was one of my earliest alienators. And I knew I wasn't like the people that I loved and wanted to belong to. And I think my father, he's really wise. He's a very young father. He had me when he was 19, had my sister when he was 17. So very wise, understood this dislocation that I was experiencing. And he nudged me toward writing as a way to make sense of the world and have some kind of connection to my exterior world to draw me out. And I think the really beautiful thing is he didn't just make it my thing because then it would have just continued to be this isolating thing. He actually made it a part of like our household culture, you know, like it, it, like he would have me and my siblings write poems to get out of chores or um, really? Us, yep. He would give us a word and he'd say, you know, write me a poem on the color yellow and all of us would do it. Or you could clean the baseboards or you could write a short story. And so he, wow, wow, wow. he wasn't a reader. He, I mean, he isn't a reader. He would tell you that he's not a reader. He's not a writer. But I think he saw something in me and and knew he knew what I needed before I did. And so, yeah, writing just came pretty naturally to me. I had a lot to get out because I was holding in so much, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, your dad sounds amazing, like really a truly amazing dad. And it's awesome to to read from the very first page how central he is in your story. And, you know, there's this thing called the father wound. And I don't know if you have it. I definitely do. <laughs> let, me, <laughs> let me tell you. I mean, because my relationship with my dad is not like that. So whenever I see that, I'm almost in awe. And I wonder, like, how do you think that your close relationship with him impacted your life? Like your the capacity that you have to weather storms in your life and even to begin Black liturgies in the face of George Floyd's death. Yeah, I mean, it does. I mean, it, it, it all traces back to my father, which traces back to my grandma, who was also a writer. But I think I've learned, so much of who I am is is because of him the core thing that kind of comes to mind and my siblings and I have talked about this some is just, and I write about it in the book is this kind of family mantra he gave us of paying attention. And, you know, if there's one thing I think Arthur's all do is, is pay attention. And I think how did that form me to have a father who was just so attentive, you know, always watching, but never too close, you know, he made sure we were journaling, but he never read our journals. He never asked us to prove that we had written. You know, he would just ask. And he has this kind of real sly attention and understanding and intuition really about people because of that attentiveness that I think, I hope that I've inherited some of that. And maybe that's helped me become a better writer. Maybe that's, you know, helped me trust myself a little to tell the stories, our family stories, because I've learned from him what it means to to, to pay attention. You mentioned like Black liturgies. My father, he's not Christian. He wouldn't, he wouldn't say he's Christian. He might say he's spiritual or whatever, but something of that project traces back to him 
trying to combat anti-blackness that he knew I was going to encounter. You know, our morning ritual where he greased our scalps and did our hair, you know, like so fabulous. We look good, you know, he, whether he knew it or not, or had language for it or not, he set up a family system that was, you know, grounded in dignity and unapologetic dignity. You know, when you meet someone who just believes they have a right to be here, you know, he's one of those people. And I think Black liturgies is absolutely, you can trace it back to that belief we have a right to be here and to center Black dignity in in this space. For those who don't know, can you share, because it is striking that you tell story after story about your dad and your grandma, but your mother is not in the story. Can you tell us where is she in your story? Yes. You're the first person who's asked me about this. Literally the first. I thought so many people would. So my father, he began he started to raise us on his own when I was around two months and my sister was two at that point. And so from like pretty you know, pretty much all my life, it's been him that has, you know, held us. He's he's been mother and father. I was also surrounded by Jenny and my grandma. And so they played this kind of mothering role as well. But it wasn't until maybe age six or so when we reconnected with her and we would visit her on the weekends. And that lasted for a very short time. But when I think about, you know, the people who've raised me, she hasn't been near enough. She hasn't been close enough to my story to really do that. And I don't feel a lot of angst about that. I, I, might feel strange, but because I have some understanding of her story, you know, I don't feel a ton of angst about that. Grief, certainly, but also gratitude that there are other women to kind of step in and and guide me, including my stepmom as well later in life. But I knew if I was going to tell, if I was going to go there, if I was going to talk about my mother, it needed space. And I was not convinced I could honor her story in the pages I had in this here flesh, if that makes sense, you know? Oh, absolutely. I do. I, I wonder if I'll write about it eventually. I suspect I will, but I, I want to make sure I can really honor it, you know, it, it, in a similar way that I honored my, my father. I totally understand what you're talking about. You will need another book that will focus on that. You couldn't just mention that, you know what I mean? Yeah. Wow. Thank you for sharing that here. So one of the things that kind of blew my mind was your dedication. (laughs) You really start off, like you start off with a bang, right? Let me read this dedication, which um, for those of you who don't have the book yet, you're going to absolutely get it right now, right? Just so you can get, read this dedication. It's so cool. To the house on Cemetery Lane, we're not afraid of you. I mean, is that that awesome or what? I mean, it's like, what? (laughs) So can you tell us about the house on Cemetery Lane? Yes. (laughs) So the house on Cemetery Lane is the house that my grandma was sent to after she left her birth mom, who was unable to care for her. So she went to this, you know, small rural town in Pennsylvania and lived in this house, yeah, on Cemetery Lane down the street from the cemetery. And if you read the book, you'll learn that it's the site of so much trauma and abuse of all kind. And I also talk about, you know, my childhood home, Salman, you know, the, the, the basement 
that my parents lived in my childhood home. And I talk a little bit about my home now. And there are these, throughout the book, there are these homes that are the site of so much pain. And I wanted this kind of, I don't know, this kind of line of defiance almost, you know, like a defiant declaration. I was actually envisioning my grandma. She passed before the book was published, but I was envisioning her holding that. And that's the reason why the dedication is there truly. I was envisioning her turning to that page and knowing, okay, she's trusted me with so much and I'm going to start on this note of yeah, d- d- defiant, you know, d- 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 I, I am here, you know, we're still here. And yeah, there's something I think really, I, I think really powerful about that. There's something also playful to it, you know, we're not afraid of you, like something childlike that I, I think I wanted to preserve. These are our stories. You're listening to the Freedom Road podcast where we bring you stories from the front lines of the struggle for justice. Why this here flesh now? Hmm. It's my first book, and I wanted kind of honor that it exists because of the opportunities made through Black liturgies. You know, Black liturgies, I didn't, I had no expectation that project would, you know, grow Mm -hmm. past maybe a few dozen of us. And it grew to a point where I gained access to all kinds of privilege, including, you know, the privilege of writing a book. Mm-hmm. And so I felt this kind of, um, yeah, I wanted to to honor Black liturgies and have it be a book about spirituality. But mm-hmm. also as my first book, I really wanted to honor who I am as a writer mm-hmm. and, and, and remember that I was a writer before Black liturgies. And so who mm-hmm. was that, you know? And the answer is I told, was a storyteller, you know, I wrote a lot of fiction actually before Black um. liturgies and poetry. And so I really wanted to, well, not initially, I thought I didn't think I was going to do this initially, but as I started to write, I'm like, no, you really need to honor the storyteller in you. You need to honor the spiritualities of your kind of house of origin, which might not have been overtly Christian, but there was a spirituality and what did that look like? And, you know, it looked like storytelling, it looked like myth, it looked like poetry. So you see a lot of those things as well. I was honestly really struck by that as I was reading. I mean, I think one of the things, we have a lot in common. <laughs> we really do. Your dad at one point lived in Inwood, New York City. Is that right? Uh-huh. Yeah. I lived in Inwood. I totally oh. lived there. Yeah. Broadway and 212th Street, like right there at the top of the A line. <laughs> you know, there's also a point where you talk about Dim Sum Gardens in Philly. I live not too far from there now. Like I live literally about 10 minutes from there right now. So yeah, so I know what you're talking about. I know what we spent so much time there when I first moved here because it's really good food. So I think, you know, that aside, the question of yourself as a writer and honoring yourself as a writer, going back to your roots as a storyteller, and the spirituality of story. Because I was really intrigued by your subtitle, 
mm-hmm. spirituality, liberation, and the stories that make us. So I was really interested because, you know, me, I mean, I'm all about story and the power of narrative. And that's a huge part of the reason why I wrote, right? The reason why I wrote Fortune. But the way that you, what I love about your work is that you're not describing it. You're either doing it, like you're actually, I think one of the points that I garnered from your work, from this work, this here flesh, is that it is the enfleshedness, it is the doing (laughs) um, of life is where spirituality is formed. And it is in the doing of connecting with yourself and with others. It's not actually, and you actually make fun of this, and I want to get to this, but it's not in the white spiritual formation, silent retreats, right? Or the intellectualism, that kind of spirituality that, that you found life. It's, it's in the life, it's in the spirituality that comes in the doing of connecting that you found with your family. So I guess there's one, one thought is, what do you think of that? Did I get that right? And then second is, you know, what do you think is the impact of, you know, typical white Christian spiritual formation and the state of our nation today? Right. Yeah. I mean, I used to think, so I consider myself a contemplative, definitely a bit of a mystic. And I, you know, for a while I let contemplation be defined by whiteness. And Mm -hmm. when I did that, I found that it had a lot to do with the mind. It was this, it really, you know, became this project of the mind, of the intellect. And, you know, you go off alone and you commit to silent hours and you think things. That's where meaning is derived. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't want to be completely dismissive of that because that Mm -hmm. is the value there, right? Yeah. yeah, There's value in it, in that it was stolen from eastern spiritualities wow stolen wait wait, wait. you gotta wait this is gonna okay so listeners (laughs) one of the things that i just one of the reasons why i'm such a big fan girl is you say the thing it's like you say it and you're you don't mince words and so what you just said there is actually important and i and it jumped off the page to me too in in your book that you know, and you give it some credit. You're like, well, this white spirituality, it, it it's valuable, but it also has to be said that it was still, it's appropriated. And that is not often said. So thank you for saying that. Now keep going. I'm sorry. Yeah. And anytime you steal something, anytime you appropriate something, you're going to dilute it. It's going to mean less and it's going to, I mean, I think whiteness, it's just not good at complexity. It's not good at nuance. And so it makes that the only thing that Mm -hmm. when it takes it, it makes it the only thing and ultimately gives you this diluted version of what it would have been, which is probably much richer in Eastern spiritualities. So anyways, I'm not completely dismissive of like silence and, you know, and meditation and things like that, but Mm -hmm. I'm interested in them in as much as they connect to my body. And as a Black woman, I'm really interested in, you know, contemplation as it connects me to my story, mm-hmm. my story, my body. I started to think, you know, actually this came out of one one day I was thinking about my ancestors who were enslaved and I was trying to have this kind of an imagination. I mean, Toni Morrison talks about this in The Source of Self-Regard, this practice of imagination for the interior lives of her ancestors that were enslaved. I was doing Mm -hmm. something similar and trying to imagine how would spirituality, you know, look in the mind and and body of, you know, 
someone that I've come from, someone that I've descended from. And I think so much of their spirituality, I suspect, had to be contained at points in the mind. You know, you couldn't always say or do, didn't always have agency over your body. And so I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm interested in that kind of contemplation, that kind of defiant, you know, you can't occupy this. You know, I'm not letting you occupy this. I'm going to let my spirituality breathe in my mind and still also stay connected to my body to use it as this kind of, in, yeah, embodied connection. So I ta- I mm-hmm. think I say contemplative storytelling in the book, mm-hmm. um, which I just made up because I wanted language for a form of contemplation that wasn't so kind of isolated, wasn't so mm-hmm. solitary, but that mm-hmm. was this kind of collective contemplative experience that wasn't about knowing the right things, coming up with the right doctrine, coming up with mm-hmm. the right things to think about God, but instead was a way of experiencing each other and experiencing life, you know, in, in the presence of the divine. Mm-hmm. And so, but what do you think is the impact of like this disconnected in the mind spiritual formation on the state of our nation and the church today? Well, you know, I think it leads to, it it creates people who think that the kind of solution is convincing. (laughs) Like everything Uh becomes this intellectual, I need to intellectually persuade you that I have dignity. Like how absolutely exhausting, how puzzling that we would demand someone prove their dignity, like articulate their dignity, articulate perfectly why they don't deserve to die at the hands of police officers or white people who just Mm -hmm. take the law into their own hands. I'm supposed to articulate that and make a rational, like, I think that's Mm -hmm. kind of the result. I mean, I, I don't think that's a stretch to say. You create people, you create spiritualities that white supremacy it wants to be supreme it makes you want your spirituality to be supreme so it creates people who it's not so much what you believe but it's being right i need my it's it's not that my religion has meaning right it's that my religion is right i need it to be supreme my thoughts need to be supreme and i think that's such a tragedy of white spirituality often is you know I've encountered spiritualities, especially in Black literature, mm-hmm. that are so disinterested with like having the right answer and are, and are like beautifully concerned with, you know, how do I communicate what it means to be human? How do I communicate? How do I convey, you know, this moment? <laughs> and I think that's so liberating. And white Christian spaces specifically would have so much to learn from, you know, someone like Toni Morrison. Toni, pick up a Toni Morrison novel, pick up a Zora Neale Hurston novel, and you'll find that spirituality doesn't need to be this kind of, it doesn't need, your spirituality doesn't need to be supreme in order for it to matter. Uh, Hallelujah. Now, let me ask you this, because you seem to have enough understanding of white spiritual formation, white Christian formation, that it's not just something that, like you listened to a podcast on it a couple of times, right? It's something that you had actual in the flesh experience of. Is that right? Mm-hmm. 
Yep. And and so how long were you immersed in that experience? And, you know, you say actually in your book, it takes time to undo the whiteness of God. So I want to know what was your process? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I first, there was this really strange season when I was young where my family attended a white Baptist church with my with my great aunt, but it was short-lived. It was because she was grieving. And, you know, apart from that, I didn't grow up going to a church. And it wasn't mm-hmm. until college that I first started to go to a church regularly. And it was white and a white evangelical church, a white evangelical campus ministry space. And I think in college, you're just so desperate for belonging. You'll do Yes, you say, are. Yes. You'll do and say all kinds of things, you know, to achieve that and to have some place to sit ultimately. And I did, you know, I, I think I ended up in those spaces and I think I survived. Um, thank God I was also encountering in my classes. So I studied writing and I, I was encountering Pony Morrison and Alice Walker and James Baldwin and Richard, and Richard Wright and these Black authors who had a different expression of spirituality, like Toni Morrison's Clearing, which I talk about yes. in This Year Flesh. You know, yes. I was encountering the clearing of Beloved that Toni Morrison wrote. And then I was sitting in a white church pew on Sunday. Mm-hmm. And I'm grateful that formation happened simultaneously because I don't know, I don't know where I would be, you know, without some kind of counter narrative that even if I didn't express it immediately, it was creating all these questions. You know, I, I was becoming increasingly suspicious of what mm-hmm. I was being told to believe as opposed to guided through. Wow. And then after college, I continued to exist in white dominated Christian spaces for a while. How long? Like, was it throughout your 20s, would you say? Or because for me, I had, again, very similar experience. And, you know, I guess here's the thing we read to know we're not alone. And as I was reading, you didn't say this explicitly, at least not that I caught yet in my reading, but I could sense that was your story. And I knew I was not alone reading your book. Mm-hmm. So I'm interested to hear some more of that. Yeah. I mean, after college, I worked for an Episcopal church on the main line. So you're in Philly, you know, the main line, right? This affluent, mm-hmm. yes. this, a white church in partnership. I, I was doing some collegiate ministry work at a small Catholic university, but very white location. Mm-hmm. But also I was like, I was close to Philly, right? So I, I lived in right. West Philly and I would commute. It would take an hour and a half some days. And I was like, I'm going to commute because if I'm not near <laughs> to some people who look like me, you know, I don't know what West Philly is looking like these days with the gentrifiers, but you know, no, it's still, this, it's still, it's still, it hasn't gentrified fully yet. Okay. <laughs> you know, so this way. was seven or eight years ago. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, that was a real transformative time because I was living in this kind of in-between. I was living in West Philly and every day being ripped out of comfort and into these white dominated spaces. But it was actually at the Catholic, the small Catholic university that I was working at that I began to befriend some nuns. It was there. You love the nuns. I love the nuns. Yes. <laughs> it seriously. Was they, seriously. Yeah. The, I mean, their hospitality, but, you know, I think if you, I mean, at least the nuns I was around, the sisters I was around, they're so honest 
And they weren't just trying to bring me into kind of who they were, but they were constantly trying to like ask me who I like, who are you truly? Who are you? When you hear that Howard Thurman speech, the sound of the genuine, I think of the the sisters, like what kind of guiding me into the true sound of the genuine in me. Wow. Leading me to think I can't work here. And they were fine with that and supportive of that and knew I needed to make my own way. And Mm -hmm. I've still existed in kind of white academic Christian like spaces, but certainly more diverse and with a more fidelity to who I am, Mm -hmm. (laughs) more of a fidelity Mm -hmm. to black women, specifically black queer women who find themselves in spaces they aren't ultimately safe in. (laughs) Mm. And Mm. so, yeah, it's taken time. And if I'm honest, like I still, if you, if you say the, the name Jesus, I'm still picturing a white face. Oh, wow. And I think that is like how tragic. I run an account, you know, I write black liturgies. I wrote this book. You say the name Jesus. I still picture a white face. I feel very distant from Jesus. I feel so, so far. I don't pray to Jesus. (laughs) Obviously, I'm in a Christian tradition, but I have to ask myself, you know, is there a connection there with the whiteness that's been implanted into the image of Christ and my distance from, you know, Christ? And so it's still complicated to this day. Yeah. So you're still in process. Mm -hmm. Yep. Still in process. I'll never forget the moment when I, I had my very first encounter with the question of what color is God? What color is Jesus? And I was watching Malcolm X and by myself late at night, like in 1990, was that 1994, 93, 94, had just come out, must've been 94. And I was so disturbed by his analysis, right? Which was right on, you know, about how he was in jail and he would look around and he would see that all the pictures of Jesus were like lily white, blonde hair, blue eyes. And he started, he gave the whole, you know, house Negro, field Negro analysis. And I went to sleep on that, that night, having not processed it with anyone. So I processed it in my dreams. And I remember I, ha- I saw, I, I needed comfort in my dreams. And so I, I had, God came to comfort me and I looked up and God had black skin. God was a black man. And I shuddered and I said, no. This is not what I want in my dream. I mean, I was conscious enough that I still remember this and I pushed God away. And I said, in my dream, bring back the God I know, bring the white God. And so then that one went away. And then I was being held by God again. I looked down at God's arm and it was, had white skin. And, but then something in me rose up and said, oh, but this is not what I want either. This is not what I want. And so I said, bring back the black God. So I brought back the black God. And in that moment, I relaxed into the black God's arms. And there was literally, there was reconciliation with self happened in that moment. There was a reconciliation with self. Because up to that point, my entire spiritual life had been spent in white evangelical communities. And so my understanding of God was white. And I went to church that next Sunday. 
I looked up at the, at this, you know, the stained glass windows and there was white blonde Jesus <laughs> right there, right behind the pulpit, like with big hands reaching out to everybody, wanting to claim everybody. Right. So I, I went to the pastor and I said, you know, my dream for this church is we would take a mallet to that stained glass window and we would actually replace it with either no image of, of Jesus or God or one that is more accurate, one that is brown. And he had on, he had James Cone on his shelf right behind him as he was speaking. He was the one who introduced me to James Cone, white pastor. And he said, but Lisa, there are people who are still here in this church who actually put that stained glass window in, <laughs> who were the ones who way back in the day, they're the ones who actually commissioned and had this thing done and it, they're still here. And so I... From that day forward, it was hard for me to go to church and to that church. And I remember thinking to myself, and I wrote this, I wrote this in my journal. It must be amazing to have a God that looks like you. Walking Freedom Road from coast to coast and around the globe, this is the Freedom Road Podcast. You have a chapter on place, which I thought was just beautiful, really powerful. And you say something in the chapter that struck me. You said that place, basically you talk about place being something to us, right? Mm -hmm. Like place is something to me. And it's something for those who came before me who were on that land. And you actually then encourage us to understand both what is place to me now and what is place, what was place to them, that same space to the ones who were before. And it's, it actually reminded me of a conversation I had with my best friend, my BFF, Maritza Crespo, who I'm sure is listening right now. And she's probably streaming <laughs> on the train in New York City. <laughs> she, she listens to it on her way to work um, every day, coming down from the Bronx into Manhattan. And so she was recently contacted or she contacted the person who lived in the house that she lives in. Like they made contact. The person who lived there before they moved in like 30, 40 years ago. And this person had stories about all these different nicks and crannies of the house that she never knew mm -hmm. and pictures of the house before they moved in and with people, you know, hanging out of windows and that kind of thing. And it was a really powerful, it's still a powerful thing for her. She's still connected to this person. And I was struck that you said, we need to do that. And I'm wondering why did, why is that so important for us right now in our national story? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think because the these stories that we're talking about that they they don't happen in a vacuum. They're they're grounded in location. They're grounded in place. Whether that's place being stolen, whether that's re relocation or abduction, you know, or, or being bound to the land, being bound to the place, and by exhaustion and work and slavery, I think we just cannot escape it. And I, I don't think we we should escape net necessary and I don't know un, un, unchangeable relationship and connection to the land. Mm -hmm. I think you know we. I'm trying to say this kindly, but we humanity we have a tendency of being so self absorbed 
Mm. in so human absorbed so human centered that we forget that we're a part of something i i really i haven't always understood that you know i'm a part of something that transcends humanity you know it includes humanity that's beautiful okay but also the dirt the earth you know the birds outside my window right now you know like wow. all of these things are connected and i have a responsibility I think I have a responsibility to care and be attentive to the stories that have formed me and the locations, you know, Mm -hmm. that this land. So I live on about eight acres of land right now. You know, Mm. this land, it has memory. I can't Mm. just claim ownership over it because, you know, I've decided (laughs) I bought something and now I I own it. That's, Mm -hmm. if you really think about it, that's a figment, you know, it's a figment of imagination, but Mm -hmm. we, that we all entertain. That's fine. I'm not saying to stop buying land, but I'm saying to really question, you know, and the scheme of the cosmos and the history of the cosmos, humanity is truly very young. We are new. And I think like children, we have so much to learn, so so much to learn about responsibility and care and attunement and understanding, you know, oh, when I put my elbow here, that actually hurts something else, someone else. And, you know, kids are learning their bodies. And I, I think like, okay, humanity, we're really young. And and so we could we would we do well to have some reverence for these things that have been here and have endured so much. Yeah. Wow. And it's, isn't that like the heart of wonder, which is actually like what the next chapter, you talk about wonder as a force of liberation. Can you talk about that? Yes. Wonder I, is a force of liberation. Wow. Yeah, I, I do think that. I don't think I knew that when I started writing, but as mm. I wrote, I'm like, yeah, this feels true that, you mm-hmm. know, I think maybe some listeners are, would resonate with this as well, but it's just very easy to let my present moment be defined by sadness or, you know, what's wrong and what doesn't look right. And, mm-hmm. you know, so much of my spiritual practice is actually leaning into that and lamenting and practicing good rage best I can. Mm-hmm. But also to have this kind of fidelity to wonder and this awareness of the beauty that's around, I think that really has protected me from despair. Honestly, mm-hmm. it's helped me. It's it's helped my lament to not become despair because I've tried to have these practices of wonder throughout the day or become a person of wonder. Beauty, it's not going to trend, right? <laughs> it's barely what's going to trend you know and that's fine we don't necessarily need it to but to know that you know because of what social media is because of these algorithms we're going to be drawn our vision is going to be drawn toward one thing can we make that a little more complex can we add some nuance to that and see beauty not in the toxic positivity you know i'm not interested in not that you know, but to see beauty and just to name it and to not try to own it or use it to diminish someone's sadness, I mm-hmm. think has been a good practice for me. Wow. You know, so a lot of your, you, well, I'm just struck by a couple of different things you said there. You, a lot of the rest of the book, or at least the, maybe the second half of the book is really going into that, into the dark places, right? You talk about fear, you talk about lament, you talk about rage. There's whole chapters dedicated to these these pieces because these are 
necessary mm-hmm. on the road to liberation. They're necessary for us to go through. In fortune, I talk about, you know, wade in the water. These are troubled waters and how we have to go through the water in order to get the troubled waters to get to the other side. And I said, I felt that reading through your book that, okay, now this is the time for the troubled waters. Mm-hmm. And you talk about lament and fear in ways that I think were, for me, new. Like you talk about fear organizations and fear communities. And I wondered what you would think about this statement. Would you say that we are a fear nation? I mean, absolutely. Yeah. I feel pretty strongly about that. That, I mean, okay, if you even, we don't even have to look at politics first. Let's just look at advertising. Let's look at a commercial. You know, it's these so often these stories of fear that are convincing us to, you know, buy this or that, you know, what, oh, you need this security system. And of course they have to have this very theatrical break-in, you know, uh, this is the the worst could happen. And then all of a sudden you think, oh man, maybe I do need this special lock that requires my fingerprint, you know, because it was on a TikTok and I, I downloaded TikTok for the first time last weekend. I deleted it that Sunday. <laughs> oh my gosh. But it was such a strange pilgrimage. I'll tell you what, such a strange pilgrimage. I gained a lot of appreciation, but also it's so, there's so much terror. Wow. And I don't know if it's me and the way the algorithm pinned me. I'm a very scared person, so it <laughs> might've caught on. But like the things, it was these medical diagnoses, you know, well, you need to... So anyways, all I'm saying, you look at advertising, you see where where fear can get someone to do something. Fear can get someone to to do all kinds of things. And then when you take that to politics, when you take that to our policies, it becomes even more terrifying. Mm. And so often the fear is a fear of no longer belonging. I don't think it's actually a fear of Well, Mm -hmm. maybe for some people, but I think so often it's a fear of like, where am I going to be? Who am I Mm going to be if this happens? You know, how much will I have if this happens? If they forgive Mm -hmm. student loans, what does that mean? Is there less for me? You know, it's all Mm of the, we've been conditioned. This is who we are. The United States, Mm -hmm. we say, this is the place, the American dream, but really it's such a culture of scarcity where everyone's Mm -hmm. wondering if there's going to be enough. Except for, of course, the the wealthiest. They don't have to wonder about that. But I'm wondering, is there going to be enough? Is there going to be enough relationship? Is there going to be enough money? Is there going to be enough, Mm. you know, I could go on and on. But I think Mm -hmm. what we see in white supremacy, but in our country as a whole, again and again, is like fear is this motivating factor. You know, my generation is Gen X. And so Gen Xers, we are solidly, sorry to say this, my generation, but we are solidly (laughs) (laughs) middle-aged. Yes, we are. We're right there in the middle, smack dab in the middle right now. But we had our moment. We had our 30s, right? We had our 20s. And and in our 20s, that's when reality bites did. And, you know, you know, that was the breakfast club. Like that was our generation, right? And much of what we realized as a generation is that we are a generation that loved to emote. Like it was our, our whole thing was lament. We were all, (laughs) we even started the whole racial reconciliation thing where you sit around. In fact, I was part of that, starting it, sit around and talk about your feelings and like cried out and hug some people and all of a sudden it's all better. (laughs) That was a Gen X thing. 
So, but it strikes me that, you know, we are living in a time right now where lament, oh my gosh, like there's so much reason to lament right on the surface. And yet millennials are not Gen Xers. Millennials are not, and I don't know really about Gen Z where they would be on this. They tend to be more like Gen X actually, but millennials have not been characterized as ones who could be in their feelings. You know what I mean? And like the whole emoting and lamenting Mm -hmm. thing. In the midst of all of this, I mean, really existential threats. You have pandemic and you have war, the threat of nuclear war. My goodness, right? And, and all the rest, police brutality and uprisings. And, and then you have just your general crap that, that we Black people have to go through every day, just like I talked about earlier. You know, does your generation lament? Hmm. I mean, it's a good question. I'll answer it best I can, but yeah. I'll give the disclaimer that I have a lot of middle-aged friends and older, <laughs> a lot of 45 and older friends, mm-hmm. um, and only a handful of friends that are actually millennials. Ah, wow. This, this is funny. It's it's really only occurring to me now, but that's I why was, you're so, that's why you have the, the plumb line of a 45-year-old as opposed, right? Like <laughs> you've, really, you've surrounded yourself. Um, with people mm-hmm. who have rubbed off. Yeah, drawn to them for sure. Mm-hmm. But I think do millennials lament? Probably not as much as we think we do. Mm. I think social media, it's not just, just to rag on it. You know, it has some goods, but it, it more and more we have access to kind of these terrors, these global terrors happening every minute of every day. We have access to them in a way that we've never had before. We just have so much information. And Mm -hmm. I think millennials are, you know, one of the earlier generations to really have to, who were really formed in that. You know, I, Facebook, I got Facebook my senior year of high school, my freshman my first year of college so you know still in this formative phase and experience this shift and this limited kind of understanding of pain in the world and this kind of explosion and we've had to bridge that chasm I don't think we've always known what to do with that Mm -hmm. all that to say I think social media especially in the past five five years it has a way of making us perform our grief. I've written about the sun perform our grief in the public arena, you know, as a, a sometimes a virtue signal, but sometimes a valid signal. Sometimes we truly do want to signal that we're safe people. So we have it's created this culture of kind of performing grief, performing mm-hmm. anger, even in response to these terrible things happening in the world. But I have serious questions, and I have serious questions because I have them of myself. Of okay, I close, I I put you know the laptop away, and am I actually feeling anything? You know, mm-hmm. or did I just articulate it in a two hundred whatever tweet <laughs> over a long tweet? Or do, do, do I do? And I I worry about that for myself and for people my age that maybe we're learning a relationship to emotion that's more hmm. about the public arena of emotion and less a lived experience. If that hmm. makes sense. It does. It does make sense. And what do you think is the the remedy for that? Well, 
Because it's interesting. I'm sorry, let me just break in real quick to say, it's interesting because the same platform that encourages the performative laments, right, or the performative anger is the platform that you chose to put Black liturgies on, right? Mm -hmm. So, which I think is beautiful and powerful because it's almost like you entered into the space to offer healing in the midst of a a space that doesn't offer it, right? So, (laughs) yeah. So in light of that, what would you say is the remedy? Yeah, I mean, I have such a complicated relationship with it because I know that it can do so much good in terms of our grief, just because not everyone has the privilege of proximity, uh, physical proximity. Um, certainly in the pandemic, we didn't have that privilege. And certainly for chronically ill and disabled people, and sometimes for Black and queer mm. people, we just might not have those relationships, mm-hmm. tangible relationships around us in the physical that we can lean on. And so I think in that way, social media can do beautiful things in terms of creating these bridges and these connections where someone might otherwise be wholly dislocated you know yeah Uh, but i think one remedy people (laughs) are gonna love this because it's just everyone says it but i think one remedy really is to close the app and to really become honest (laughs) you know go for a walk and really become honest do you are you sad are you angry? <laughs> like, are you really? Mm. If you are, that's okay. Let's go there. You know, I can spend time there. This is what I have to do. Do I feel nothing at all? And, you know, it's hard to mm-hmm. admit, but sometimes, I mean, often I feel nothing. And so I have to ask myself, well, should I feel something? You know, should mm. I be trying to really establish empathy? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. But mm-hmm. it's about that interior honesty. And I think <laughs> really becoming acquainted with your own interior world i think it can really tether you to something true when you're like opening an app and all of a sudden being thrust in all these different directions and you know to have this interior tether of like okay i'm not going to completely get swept into the emotion of this statement i want to empathize but i don't want to be consumed if that Mm -hmm. makes sense and i want to express but i don't want to perform for someone else's consumption and i think it's a really complicated dance i I don't have full answers to it but but you know actually you said some things earlier that i'm starting my mind the way that it works is i make connections all the time it's like i see patterns and one of the things that i see is that you talk about you know, the difference between white spirituality and the spirituality of your family, which was very connected, it's grounded, it's lived, it's experiential. And it strikes me that what you said about social media platforms is very similar to how you characterized white spirituality in that it puts you in your head. It makes you think it's like, it's really about consuming knowledge rather than living a life, right? And so when you hear something that is sad online, that same space has not really taught you how to process it. It's taught you how to understand it Mm -hmm. and not how to actually process it in your body. So you can think because you wrote a really angry comment, (laughs) right? And the person's Instagram feed, or because you, you wrote a sad face with a tear and, you know, or, you know, I'm praying for you with somebody loses someone that you had that that now has become equal to lamenting but i love what you just said close 
the damn app. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Close the app. Mm-hmm. Lament is actually a way to connect. It's being connected with your own self mm-hmm. and how you feel. And then you go into rage. Rage is the next one. And then after that is justice. And so I'm wondering, you know, are you afraid of rage? I I am. Yeah. <laughs> I am. I wrote a whole chapter about it, but I, I am afraid yeah. of it. I, I, how, mm-hmm. I mean, I think, how can I not be as a, well, as a Black woman, mm-hmm. I'm afraid of it in terms of my own embodiment of it because mm-hmm. I'm terrified of being reduced to the trope you know the trope of the angry black woman but also as a black woman who i know what white anger has done i know what white rage has done to the to to me to the people who've Mm -hmm. come before me Mm -hmm. and so yeah i am afraid of it but also Mm -hmm. have learned and found so much beauty in it and so much liberation in it you talk about lament as this like connecting force and i think rage is similar my my grandma really helped me to realize this cuz she talks about being so angry at god she couldn't let go of god wow <laughs> I, I, and she was like it was my wow. anger it was my anger that kept me attached to god she was so angry at god and she's like that's what kept my faith honestly that kept her faith alive because the anger wouldn't let her let go even if she hated god it was this like anger comes for you right it's not wow. this, it's not this i'm taking a step back you know it's yeah. not apathy it's not disconnect yeah. it's it's coming for you, you know? yeah for better or worse it's coming toward it doesn't always need to look like an attack but yeah if you think of that kind of image rage mm-hmm. that's coming for you it's this inherently connecting force and i think mm-hmm. there's something that can be so beautiful in that, you know, beautiful in saying, I'm not going to just walk away, you know, <laughs> or yeah. sometimes I am going to walk away, but I'm not just going to let this be. And that ultimately, yeah, keeps me. And doesn't rage come from deep care, right? Like if we didn't care, we wouldn't be enraged. Yes. Yep. I mean, it comes because we care. Ah. Yeah. And, and so, we have an imagination for something else. You, mm-hmm. I had hope for something else, for yeah. being treated a different way, for being a different way, you know. Yeah, comes from hope. Your book ends with joy and liberation. And I wonder, where are the spaces in your life that where you find joy? And what has liberation tasted like for you? Yes. So... I have found joy lately in peace and and rest and have really, I mean, especially in this pandemic, I've, yeah, I've just been so depressed and trying to locate a kind of joy that feels just accessible to me, inaccessible to my body as well. Like, how can I participate in this? And it's looked Mm. a lot like rest and just, you know, allowing myself to, to lie there on the couch and just stare out the window. I spend a lot of time staring, <laughs> you know, and because I, I, I have so much trouble with my eyes, I'm like, okay, if I have a, a good day with my eyes, it's like, I sometimes just want to sit and just look around. <laughs> I never yeah. thought I would, you know, be doing that. But yeah, I, I spend mm-hmm. so much time doing that, which I love. And liberation, I'm finding in my body, as we talked about, 
I'm starting to try to make these integrations daily between, you know, an emotion or a story in my body. So, you know, if I'm angry, this may sound cheesy, but, I, you know, I'll shout or I'll try to have some kind of practice to embodied practice to connect to the anger or some kind of embodied gesture to connect with the lament and that's been a really just really beautiful to me to just kind of know my body in a new way you know with its limitations but also okay what can I still what can I still what can I still do with these arms and these legs and you know how can I move today that feels right to me and connects to my full lived experience oh I love that I'm gonna seriously start doing I I'm gonna start thinking about moving my body in ways that bring health and in ways that bring connection really reconnectedness to my body as an act of liberation. Yes. Oh my God. I really literally feel like I just like, like you, you offered a gift here. Hmm. Last question. What is your hope for the impact of this book? I hope that people read it and they feel drawn into their own stories I mean I think about I'm currently reading your book Fortune I'm currently and thank you it's like that I just would love more of us to be Mm -hmm. going there I mean you don't need to write a book but what does it mean to really preserve memory preserve artifacts these things that have been taken from us I'm speaking to black people these things that have been taken and lost like what does it mean to try to really recover some of your own familial story and Mm -hmm. try to protect it if people read this your flesh and they do you know any of that I'll feel very proud yeah I'm sure they will The conversations leaders have on the road to justice. This is the Freedom Road Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The Freedom Road Podcast is recorded in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And this episode was engineered and edited by David Dalt of Sandberg Media. Freedom Road Podcast is produced by Freedom Road LLC. We consult, coach, train, and design experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and lead to common action. You can find out more about our work on our website, freedomroad.us. You can stay in the know by signing up for our updates. We promise we will not flood your inbox. So we invite you to listen again next month. And in the meantime, join the conversation on Freedom Road.